missed to Transformation Station. Um, my name is Kevin Sanders, church planting apprentice here at Redemption Hill, planting Redeeming Grace in Arlington, and uh, just a joy to be a part of Redemption Hill and what God is doing in Medford in, in uh, just greater Boston, and um, a joy to be here opening the Word and hearing what God has to say to us collectively this morning. Uh, before we jump in, we're going to be in Psalm 46. You can turn there if you want. Go ahead and turn there. If you've got a Bible you grabbed on the back, it's page 471. But just a brief update on what God's doing in Arlington and with Redeeming Grace. A few weeks ago, in conjunction with Serve Medford, we had uh, Serve Arlington. And so just a great week of people from um, our sending church in Atlanta, Georgia, and people from our our core team serving the community in various different ways. We hosted a a movie night as well on that Friday night and saw um, a ton of people, great turnout. We're able to have some great conversations connecting with the community, even sharing the gospel. Um, And then on the Sunday, the 31st, we had our uh, first preview service where we saw some people that we've been engaging with the gospel come, people who are either looking for a church or uh, considering the claims of Christ. And so just to see what God did there was uh, extremely encouraging. Um, Just want to tell you that because I know you've been praying for us. And if you want to know more about Redeeming Grace and and what we're about, you can see me afterwards. And there's also information on the table in the back. There's an interest packet about Redeeming Grace. And so continue to pray for us. We need uh, God to continue to move in Arlington. And and it's a part of the, the vision, really, that Redemption Hill has to see not just God move in this city, but in all of, uh, of Boston, and that's going to take a, a lot of churches, so uh, thank you for that. Um, Psalm 46, let me read God's word, we're going to pray again, and we're going to jump right in. Psalm 46, beginning in verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. How he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, your word is alive. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to cut us open and reveal our sinfulness and reveal our need of you. And it also brings comfort as we see this morning in Psalm 46. And many of us in this room are experiencing trials right now. and We need to hear this word of comfort from God our refuge. And all of us, if we're not in the midst of a difficult day, 
We are either coming out of one, in the middle of one, or we will again enter a season of difficulty. So would you show us from your word this morning that you are our refuge, you are victorious, and that in Jesus Christ you are ever-present in the midst of any scenario that we face. God, we love you, we praise you, we give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, The year was 1527. Uh, A man named Martin Luther experienced one of the most trying years of his life. He was preaching in Germany one day, and he had a dizzy spell and passed out. A night soon after that, he had a friend come over and overcome with an intense ringing in his ear, another dizzy spell, no, no idea what's going on. He just fell out of his chair, grew cold, and thought he was going to die, and his friends thought he was dead as well. This started a season of just intense health difficulties for this pastor and theologian in Germany. Uh, he recovered from that, only to be overcome by a deep sense of depression, Martin Luther was known for taking a stand against corruption within the church about 10 years earlier in 1517, and this sort of propelled him to being known, a known theologian. But this was 10 years in the making, and he had threats against his life. He had now had friends who who were very close to him turn against him in harsh criticism, and this propelled him into deep, deep depression. He also felt that he had a a bit of a hand in the political turmoil of his country at the time in Germany. That was overwhelming to him. Then in August of 1527, after all this has happened, the plague came to Wittenberg. And Luther and his family, they were committed to showing compassion to those in need, showing the compassion of Christ, which meant they were in the thick of helping the sick. And in the midst of that, Luther's son contracted the plague. And somehow, in the midst of all of this, the most trying year of Luther's life, he was able to sit down and meditate on Psalm 46. And after reflecting on the truths of God from this very psalm that we're looking at this morning, he wrote a hymn. And this hymn is probably one of the most popular hymns in the history of the church, a hymn entitled, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And in the midst of his difficult day, he looked to God's word and he found a refuge and he wrote, the first line of this hymn says, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark or a defense wall never failing, our helper, he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Have you ever had a season like that in your life? Maybe not that intense, like 1527 for Martin Luther, but a a, a time of intense difficulty, maybe at work, or a relationship not going the way you expected, or things in the family. We think about what David Butler preached last week. There's regret in parenting, or there is the loss of a loved one, or there is cancer, or there is sickness, or there is just deep depression, and you have no explanation for it. What do you do in those moments? How do you respond? This psalm is for you. 
By the way, if you're not in the midst of a time like that right now, please don't tune this out because everybody is either in the midst of a storm, they're coming out of a storm, or they're going to go into one. So if you say, oh, my life is trial-free, I would just say to you, just wait a little bit. It's coming. This psalm is for you. And my prayer is that we, like Martin Luther, like the sons of Korah who wrote this hymn for the people of Israel to sing, that we would, when difficult days come, behold God as our victorious and ever-present refuge. That's what we see in Psalm 46. And so what I want to do this morning is spend the next few moments just pulling out three statements that we see about God in this psalm. And then see how the psalmist directs us in how to respond. This psalm actually gives us very clear application of what to do with these truths about God. And here's the first truth that we see. God is our refuge. God is our refuge. That's how the psalm begins. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. A refuge is a shelter. The idea here is shelter from the storm. Uh, It's a safe hiding place. It's to say that God is our protection. He's our strength. He is where we go when difficulties arise. Maybe you've been caught in a downpour with no umbrella. And what do you do? You either run to the car or you run for cover or you, you know, or it's just water. So you're like, it's a no big deal. But most of us, we hate rain. So when the downpour comes, we run and we find a refuge to cover us from the storm. God is this refuge in the midst of trial. So to say that God is our refuge and strength is to say that he is our safe place, that in him we are hidden from harm even though we're in the midst of it. I was a youth pastor down in Georgia, and we took our senior high school students on a retreat, and this was at the end of their senior year, and it was a real kind of intense retreat focusing on, um, you know, here, here's the focus on next area of life, and, and we went to a, uh, a place in Tocoa, Georgia, up in the mountains in the middle of nowhere, North Georgia, and it was off-season, so it's this huge camp, and there's only about 15 of us. We're the only campers there. So we decide one night during free time to play a game of sardines. Um, sardines is like reverse hide-and-go-seek. So you, one person goes and hides, everybody else waits for you know, five or so minutes, and then you go and you find that person. And if you find that person, you hide with them until you're packed into a small place like sardines. I think that's how they got the name. So we play this game, and Aubrey, who was the pastor's son, was going to hide. And he goes and he hides. And we wait, and we start looking for him. And 10 minutes, no Aubrey. 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. After about an hour, I'm freaking out a little bit. Like, I lost the pastor's son, kind of freaking out. Like, this is the end of my job. Uh, no, two hours later, no Aubrey. So we reconvene. I'm a, I have my phone out. I'm dialing 911 to call and tell the Tacoa Police Department that I lost our pastor's son and that some mountain people from Tacoa might have taken him somewhere, I don't know. And out walks, you know, six foot two, Aubrey Rucker. He says, hey guys. And I, to be honest, in that moment, I wanted to kill him. But we were like, dude, where were you? You had to have been moving around. He said, listen, let me show you where I hid. And he hid behind these curtains. He said, you guys walked by me 
probably about 20 times. You touched the curtains all around me about 20 times. But he was so far back into this place with a curtain in front of him, there was no way we could, we could find him. That's what a refuge is. That's what a hiding place is. In the midst of difficulty and struggle, you are surrounded by trials. You are surrounded by pain. You are surrounded by struggle. And it's this close to you, but if God is your refuge, it cannot touch you. That's what it means to say that God is our refuge, our safe place. He is our protection. The psalmist goes on to give the scenario in which God is our refuge and strength. Verses 2 and 3 gives this imagery of the earth giving way, the mountains being moved to the heart of the sea, waters around us, mountains trembling before the swelling of difficulty. What is this referring to. Now language like this in the Bible oftentimes is looking forward to the end of time, to the end of days, when God is going to come and judge and the old world is going to pass away and the new world is going to come. But also refers to natural disasters, earthquakes, floods. What the psalmist is doing here is saying, in the whole scheme of difficulty, God is our refuge. Whether it's natural disasters, whether it's the end, whether it is a sin struggle, whether it is a world crisis, whether it's who's going to lead our country, whether it's what will, how will we be protected against terroristic attack, whether it is how will I overcome this sin that continually seems to beat me down, whether it's how will God work in this cancer that my loved one is experiencing. The whole scope of trials is included here. There is nothing outside of which God is not to be our refuge and strength. And so the answer to all of those questions is to, that we would find our refuge in God. And, and what does it mean, by the way, we've said this phrase, take refuge a lot already, It means simply this, to trust and believe, to trust and believe. So to take refuge in God means to trust and believe that he is sovereign over it all. Sovereign means in control. It means he's the boss. It means that he is working in it even when you cannot understand it. It means that even if it's not immediately fixed like you want it to be, God has a purpose within it. It means that no matter what comes, you trust and believe that if you have Believed in Christ, nothing can separate you from the grip of God. That's what it means to take refuge in Him. So the question we have to ask this morning is, is not this, will the storms or difficult days come? That's not a question we're asking. The answer to that question is yes. The question we need to ask and answer is this, when these storms come, when the battles rage on, where or who is our refuge? Where are you finding your strength? Do you try and build your own shelter in the storm? Do you try and say, you know what, I can, I can suffer through this on my own. I'm, I'm big enough for this. Or do you grow bitter and ignore the truth of Scripture 
that God is a good God who is for you in Christ, that God is a refuge, and instead of taking refuge in God, you say, you know what, God, you brought this on, so I'm bailing. Or do you take refuge in him? Do you trust and believe in him? Why do you think this is so difficult for us to take refuge in God? The the reason is because if we seek refuge, we have to admit weakness. And that's not really a popular uh, character trait in our culture, right? Our heroes are strong people. We're fascinated with superheroes, right? Every time you blink, there's a new superhero movie coming out. Why? Because we love the idea of the superhuman who's able to conquer everything, who is untouchable by things that affect us, right? None of us are, are waiting with excitement, anticipation for our favorite sports team to say, you know what? We're weak. We're tired. We can't do it. We forfeit. But... In God's economy, listen, this is so important to this psalm, and this is so important to the truth of the Christian faith. In God's economy, the only valuable currency for us is weakness. The only thing that God requires of us is that we recognize how desperately needy we are. And so if we can't admit our desperate need of intervention from God in the midst of trials or on an ongoing basis in every area of our life, if we can't say, God, we are weak and we need you, then we don't understand Christianity. We don't understand the gospel. G.I. Packer wrote a book called Weakness is the Way. And he said this, the way of true spiritual strength leading to real fruitfulness in Christian life and service is the humble, self-distrustful way of consciously recognized weakness in spiritual things. In other words, the way of the Christian life is to recognize how desperately you and I need to take refuge in God. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. But he said to me, Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See what Paul is saying here? He's saying I'm content in difficult days. Why? Because in those moments... In my deep weakness, I take refuge in Christ, and there is my strength found. Weakness is the way. God is our refuge. Second thing we see about God in Psalm 46 is this. God is ever-present. God is ever-present. The presence of God is really emphasized not just in one spot here, but all throughout the psalm. Look at verse 1 says he's a very present help in trouble. Verse 4 talks about the city of God as the holy habitation of the Most High, the place where God dwells. Verse 5, God is in her midst. Verse 7 and in verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. So all throughout this psalm, the theme of God's continual presence with his people is clear. If you look at verse 4, we 
we get some imagery here. We get three pictures here that we have to kind of think through and look at the rest of Scripture and say, what does this mean? What does this mean for us? Verse 4, the psalmist refers to the city of God. What's he talking about there? He's talking about Jerusalem. In fact, in two chapters later, Psalm 48, verse 8, the psalmist says that God will establish Jerusalem, the city of God, forever. So a place, an actual location, that is representative of God's presence for eternity with his people. He goes on to say this is the holy habitation. And this refers to in Jerusalem, in this city, there was a temple, the temple. And this temple was the dwelling place of God among his people. And we see another picture in verse 4 of a river. What is this river? Here's what's interesting about the psalmist saying there's a river in Jerusalem. There was no river in Jerusalem. So what is he saying here? This river is the flowing presence of God to the people of God. It's the promise of God that he will continually be with his people. So what does all of that mean for us? Well, if we think about the temple in Israel, in Jerusalem, and we think about Jerusalem itself, we have to realize that the temple was actually taken in 587 BC, and then again in AD 70, it was destroyed by the Romans. So what we're not saying here, what we can't say here, is that if you want God's presence, you need to go down to Logan, hop on a plane, go over to Jerusalem, find the temple, which is not there, and there you will have the presence of God. That's not what we're saying. It can't mean that. It's not there. So what does this mean? This holy habitation, this temple, this city, Jerusalem, where the presence of God dwells, this finds its fulfillment in Jesus. In fact, if you've sat here through uh, the preaching through the Gospel of John, let me remind you, go way back to John chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. It says this, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, And in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build the temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is saying, I myself am the temple. Look at Revelation 21, 22, looking forward to this day. And I saw no temple in the city For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now what about this river? Look at John chapter 7. This is on the last day of the feast, the great day Jesus stood up and cried, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Look forward to Revelation 22, verse 1. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Here's what this means. If you want to take refuge in God, if you want to experience the ever presence of God you need to look nowhere else other than the person of Jesus Christ the presence of God for us is not found 
in a building. It's not found in a city. It's found only in Jesus. So when we say take refuge, when we say here's what it means to experience the presence of God, what we're saying is trust in Christ and you will receive something that can never be taken away, and that is God's presence. Now think about what that means for you in difficult days. One of the biggest things that happens for people when they are in the midst of either depression or struggle is there's, it's very, very easy to feel lonely. Whether it's true or not, you may be surrounded, we've probably all been in a place where we're surrounded by loved ones, but because we're struggling, because times are difficult, we still feel absolutely alone. And for whatever reason, we cannot shake that. Here's what this means. In Jesus, you were promised something. You will never, ever again be alone. No matter how alone you feel and no matter what happens, the presence of God is always with his people. Think about the results of this. The presence of God casts out fear in the midst of those difficulties. We have five children, and um, they wake up sometimes in the middle of the night. It's an understatement. And sometimes uh, it's because of a nightmare. And they're scared or they see a shadow. That's like a new thing in our house is shadows are scary and nightlights cast shadows. And so they wake up, they come into the room, and they want to be consoled and they want to be comforted. And what do they want to hear? What do kids really want to hear in those moments? They want to hear, it's okay, daddy's here. They want to be assured of your presence. They want to hear, it's okay, mommy's right here. Nothing's going to happen to you. What we see here in God's word is that because of Jesus, we are always promised the presence of God. We will never suffer alone. That means not only does that cast out fear in the midst of trial of what's going to happen to us or how this is going to end or what the result's going to be, it also brings joy. We can... We can experience joy in the midst of trials. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the pathways of life. In your presence, God, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So the result of this ever-present God is that fear is cast out in the midst of trials, and that gladness and joy is possible for us. So God is our refuge. God is ever-present. And third, we see that God is victorious. God is victorious. Not only does he protect us as a refuge, promises presence, he also fights for his people. Look at verse 6 of Psalm 46. It says, the nations rage and the kingdoms totter. The very next phrase contrasted, he utters his voice and the earth melts. There are nations raging against the people of God. There are people who are opposed to God. There are people who are opposed to the nation of Israel. But God is the God of the universe. So all of their raging, all of their warring, all of their opposition of God can be dealt with with a single word from the creator of the universe. He utters his voice and the earth melts. Verse 8, he's brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars end. He breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he burns the chariots with fire. There's a very clear application for us. It's an election year. Whenever there's an election year, there's this, this struggle for us to think that the right person in the right political office is going to fix everything. That is just absolutely not true. 
Not true. We also struggle with this sort of fear of surrounding nations. What's going to happen? Listen, all of those things are very, very important for us to consider. But we have to know that no matter how much the nations rage, no matter who is president, no matter who sits on the Supreme Court, that God is king of the universe. Right? And that should bring comfort to us. God is victorious over all enemies and all opposition. This victory of God is an ongoing theme throughout the Old Testament. He delivered His people from slavery in Egypt in Exodus. He provided military victories for, for Joshua as they entered the promised land. He constantly warded off enemies and preserved His people. But all of those victories point to a victory over a greater battle that we experience. For those of you in here this morning who maybe are exploring Christianity, you're not really sure about who Jesus is, let me tell you something very, very important. Your greatest problem, your most difficult day is not here and now. Your most difficult day is coming when you stand before God in your own sinfulness and you give an account for how you've rebelled against Him. But here's the good news. God has provided victory, not just over our difficulties, but more importantly, over our sin that separates us from Him. Colossians 2, 13 and 15, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Listen to this. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Your greatest battle, your greatest difficulty, your worst day, if you don't know Jesus, will not happen here. In fact, these will be your best days. Your worst day will be when you stand before God. And the good news is that you can, in this moment, you can now recognize your sin, turn from your sin, and trust in Jesus, who paid for your sin by living a sinless life that you and I could never live, dying on a cross, dying a death that we should have died as sinners, raising from the dead, defeating sin and death, and disarming the rulers and authorities of sin in your life. That's ultimate victory. That's ultimate victory, and that's the gospel. But we even look forward to an ultimate victory. You may hear this and say, wait a second. If God is really victorious, then why do I still suffer? If God is really the winner of this all, then why do I experience pain? We look forward to a day. And if you would, turn with me to Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 7 looks forward to the final victory and says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned by her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Listen, the reality is that we cannot answer all the questions on why we suffer. I don't know all the reasons you may be experiencing a certain difficulty. Each of us have thousands of questions, probably, that will always remain unanswered this side of heaven. But here's the hope for us. Not only that God has conquered our sin in Christ, not only that we are in Him victorious over sin and death, but that we look forward to a future day where we can guarantee that every single tear that we cried is wiped away. That every single terrible phone call we got with bad news on the other end is undone. Where every single sin is no more because God is restoring everything that is broken. And that future, that future hope should empower us to suffer well now. Maybe you've been watching the, the Olympics, and one of the things that's most fascinating to me about the Olympics is not necessarily the, the games themselves, though it's awesome to watch. We had a chance last night to see uh, Americans, let's see some lady swimmers bring in another gold and a, another silver, and that's awesome, that's great. But what's amazing to me is the road to the Olympics, that these athletes have devoted their lives to this, their rigorous training it's just led up to this short amount of time. It's really leading up to their eyes are on one thing. Their eyes are on the gold. Can you imagine? Some, I, read, I read of Michael Phelps' uh, training regime, and I got, I got winded. You know what I'm saying? Like, can you imagine? There are probably countless times where they, they feel like, you know what, this is enough. This isn't worth it. I want to quit. What keeps them going? They're looking forward. They're looking forward. These last few years, they're looking forward to Rio. They're looking forward to the gold. Now, here's what's good news for us. As we look forward, we're not looking forward wondering who's going to win. We're looking forward fully assured of victory in Christ. That should motivate us to endure our trials well. That should give us hope in the midst of suffering. Now, even when we can't answer all of the questions... So these are the three characteristics that we see of God laid out before us. He's our refuge. He is victorious. He is ever-present. But the psalm goes on to say, here's how we're to respond. I want to draw out three things in our response here. The first is this. Simply behold. Look at verse 8. It says, come behold the works of the Lord. Some texts of Scripture very clear on application and tell us something to do. This is not one of those texts. What the psalmist wants us to, to do here is believe. 
is to see who God is and to recognize who he is. To behold means to look and see, not just with physical eyes, but to perceive and understand, to recognize who God is in such a way that faith is excited in us by God's grace and that we cling to him as our refuge and as our ever-present victory. Are you beholding God for who he is? One of the greatest struggles for us in the midst of trial is it reveals what we actually think about God. And so if we're, we're going through life and, and when everything is great, God is great, and then when something happens, God for some reason is not so great anymore. And what that reveals about us is that we think that God should play on our terms. What do we need to do in that situation? When we say, God, how could you treat me this way? After all, I've been to church. After all, I've been giving. After all, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not like these people. What do we need to do in those situations? We need to behold God for who he actually is, who's an ever-present refuge, whether or not we're experiencing good times or difficulties. So behold God. Are you beholding God? And for the person who's not a Christian in here, To behold God means for the first time, look at the work of Christ, recognize your sin, turn from your sin and trust in him and behold him for the first time. To repent, which means to turn from your sin and look to Jesus in faith. That's what it means for you to behold God. I'd encourage you to do that now. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what does it mean for us? It means we need to behold Christ anew, afresh. We need to look to him and see who he truly is in his word. We need to look to him as our victory and as our refuge. Now, practically, I I would encourage you, if you're in the midst of these trials, spend some prolonged time in prayer, seeking God in prayer, seeking God in his his word. I, I would encourage you to not be alone. Commit to a Christian community. So when you are in those moments where you were wondering where God is in all of this, you can have brothers and sisters in Christ come alongside you, pray for you, and remind you that God is your refuge, that he's victorious, that he is ever-present. We need to behold God. Second thing we see here is in verse 10. How are, we, how are we to respond? Be still and know that I am God. We like to fix things when they're broken. So when a trial comes, our first thought tends to be, how do I get out of this? What's the quickest way I can get out of this? How can I fix this? Now listen, practically there are things we can do to get ourselves out of sticky situations. But let me submit this to you. Do you realize that God has a purpose for every trial? And so maybe, instead of focusing so much much on how you can get out of the season you're in, what God wants you to do is just to be still and know Him and explore maybe the reasons why God has you in this trial in the first place. So instead of being anxious and trying to fix everything, be still and know him. Or another translation of this is cease striving and know him. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, a verse that has meant so much to me in difficult times. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, In all thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Notice what the Scripture doesn't say. The Scripture doesn't say, behold Him, be still and know Him, pray to Him in the midst of trial, and then God will fix everything. 
It's not what the scripture says. Instead, it says, behold, be still and know. Commit your way to him. Pray to him, and he will give you peace to endure the trial. So behold, be still. And lastly, this is implied. This is implied in our text here. Be on mission. Behold, be still, and be on mission. You say, wait a second. We've been talking about suffering. We've been talking about enduring trials. Now, why are we talking about mission? And by by mission, what we mean is as Christians displaying who God is and what Christ has done to the world around us with our words and our deeds. How does that fit into all this? Look what the text says. God will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted among the earth. How does he do that? How did he do that with Israel? He took a people And he transformed them so much so that the world around took notice. How does he do that for us in the midst of our trials? Listen, when you and I experience difficulties and in the midst of those trials, we don't do that in a vacuum. We do it before a watching world. So when you experience your difficult day, do you realize that your neighbor is watching? Do you realize that your coworker is watching? Do you realize that your family member is watching? Do you realize the world is watching us as the church, how we experience difficulties? And if we suffer well, and in the midst of those trials, do what the world doesn't do, and we take joy in Christ, and we take refuge in Him, and we give glory to Him, the world takes notice, and we bear witness to our God. It's mission. Our desire should be to display God to a watching world. So think back about Martin Luther and ask yourself this question. You may not be a hymn writer, but in that trial, what kind of song would your suffering write? In the midst of that difficult day, what would your hymn say to the world who's watching? Would it declare to the world that God has a mighty fortress, that he's a refuge, He's he's ever present with us in Christ. Would it declare to a world that, listen, you will experience pain and suffering, but in Jesus, you'll have eternal life? Is that what your song will say? Or will it say that God is not really big enough to conquer my trials? How you suffer, how you and I experience difficult days is displayed to a watching world around us. This is why the presence of God is so important. Psalm 46 ends with this. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. When we fast forward to the New Testament, we see the end of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus ends the Great Commission where he tells his disciples to go and make disciples. He ends it with this, Matthew 28, 11, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The presence of God not only helps us endure our trials, is with us in trials, but empowers us to suffer well before a watching world. What will our song be? So let's, by the grace of God, together behold God as our victorious and ever-present refuge. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in, with so many different scenarios that are represented in this room. So many different backgrounds. Some of us are in the midst of a difficult day, difficult season of life. 
Some of us, things are going extremely well by your grace. Some of us, we've never trusted in you. And so God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would show us the greatness of who you are. That we would truly and genuinely behold your works. That we would know that we cannot find refuge that lasts. Refuge that is eternal in anywhere other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those who may be despairing in their lives right now, sunk in deep depression, wondering how they will get out. Would you, in this moment, comfort them with the truth of your word? Would you call them to trust in you? And God, I pray for Redemption Hill as a church to be a community that surrounds one another in difficult days, that suffers well before a watching world, and that bears witness to Jesus in those moments. We pray all these things in the name of Christ for your glory. Amen.